and welcome to Let's Talk Clean Air. Today, chatting with an expert in building science about the pluses and minuses of the quality of indoor air. Cleaning generates a ton of pollutants. I would never tell people not to clean, but you might want to think about how you're ventilating during cleaning, who is present during cleaning. You know, same thing with, with cooking. You know, it's not so much don't cook, but it's still a risk and you want to manage it. So, so use that range hood fan. My name is Dusty Rhodes and I'm joined by John Holmes, the National Accounts Manager for Canfield Canada. Uh, John, you're excited about our interview today. Tell me why. Thank you, Dusty. I certainly am. Our guest today is a renowned expert in the field of air cleaning, ventilation and building science. His academic career has actually stretched from Berkeley to Texas and his current position is Professor of Civil Engineering at the University of Toronto. He's a fellow of ASHRAE. He's been on TV, radio, newspapers. He's basically an indoor air quality celebrity. So it is an absolute pleasure to welcome Professor Jeffrey Siegel, who we call affectionately the Professor. Jeff? Thanks so much for having me. Jeff, can I start off by asking you about, I mean, we had COVID at the start of the decade, which really elevated the issue of air quality with, of course, you know, the pandemic. Now that it's over, do you think that indoor air quality still matters? Well, of course, indoor air quality mattered long before the pandemic. It will matter long after we're out of whatever phase of the pandemic we're in now. And I think that the whole issue is is less does indoor air quality matter and how do we convey how much it matters? How do we convey that? Because it seems to be such a a monster of information. You know, you go on Google and you're just, you can potentially be bombarded by all sorts of different takes on the same thing. Yeah, so I think we have kind of two distinct issues on on the kind of communication piece. The first one is, you know, there's actually a lot we don't know. And so there's uh, indoor air quality has kind of not really received the same kind of attention that other environmental issues have received, even with the pandemic. So we uh, there's a lot we don't know and a lot we learn every day with research and with 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 other kind of attention to it. But the other piece that that's maybe a little bit more important is that even though we don't know everything, we know how to improve indoor air. And it's a very simple model that's been around much longer than I have. And that is the first thing you do is you get rid of sources. Uh, and there are many sources of indoor air pollution, smoking, cooking, lots of other things. And we know about them. And so we know that we either have to move them out of our buildings or uh, we have to vent them so that pollution isn't coming indoors. Once we've dealt with source control, then we have ventilation as a tool. Ventilation is a little complicated in some places or at some times almost everywhere because outdoor air quality isn't always good. But the, the simple idea of ventilation is you bring in clean outdoor air. You might have to filter it or clean it first to make it uh, really clean. And then you dilute whatever is indoors uh, with that. And we can't ever get away from ventilation. Well, that's a really that's a really good point, though, too, right? There's a very big difference from my understanding between clean outdoor air and like fresh air versus clean outdoor air. Very, very different. Can you maybe explain for, for the folks yeah. what the difference would be? So I always am tr- actually troubled by the term fresh, right? Because what does fresh even mean? Fresh means something different everywhere in the world. And and every people might think that air that smells good is fresh, but it could in fact not be very clean or very healthy to breathe in. And, and so what we mean or what I say when I mean ventilate with with, with clean air is I mean air that has been cleaned of of the pollutants we know about. So certainly particulate matter, 
And then depending where you are in the world, there might be other things, nitrous oxides, some harmful VOCs, other things that we also want to clean. If we could take a step back before, you know, measure or reducing sources and improving ventilation and filtration, what is it like, what is the benefit or benefits, I should say, to improving indoor air quality? What impact does that have on humans? And just as a follow-up, you know, I, I find some people that I've met over the years say, well, isn't it better to have particulate because that way you get stronger because like the horm- hormetic stresses, I believe, from working out or heat uh, exposure and stuff, you can get stronger. So what is the benefit of improving indoor air quality? Yeah. So the real question is, how long do we have uh, to answer that? But but we have this very long list of health effects that come from breathing polluted indoor air. So everything from a variety of, of cardiovascular outcomes, respiratory outcomes, cancers, uh, and then things that, that maybe aren't quite part of the conversation yet, but should be things like productivity, well-being, cognitive function, all those sorts of things. The second part of your question is interesting, though, and, and that is, you know, don't we want a little bit of exposure? And the short answer to that is no. Uh, we don't. Uh, a little bit longer answer is that, of course, it's very complicated and so on. But I always think about something like the particulate matter standard. So in Canada, where I am, the residential guideline for indoor particulate matter is exactly consistent with the scientific evidence. And that is there is no safe limit. We want it to be as low as possible. And I think that's true for a lot of indoor air pollutants. So, so it's not like there's a safe limit and an unsafe limit or kind of a limit that helps you build protection. We want to, in general, get rid of things in the air. It's, of course, more complicated than that, but that's the short answer. I, I, I totally agree with you because, frankly, I liken it to, sure, when you're a kid, you want to play in the dirt and build up that immune system. However, our lungs weren't designed to be dealing with particulates. If we really go back to cave person times, you know, really, I don't see a benefit to, to having inhalation of, of particulates. So, yeah, you did it in a much better, uh, more educated way, but I... I'm glad we're on the same page. Jeff, can I ask you kind of when you're talking about the benefits of indoor air quality, it's like it's it's cleaner air and it's this and this. But how can you paint the benefits of indoor air quality in a sense of like it will help you live longer? Those kind of benefits. Yeah. So you bring up a really good question. And I think that the answer is we know that exposure, cleaner air helps you avoid a variety of what, what's called chronic health outcomes, things that affect you decades in the future. And so I, I don't know of the, the exact evidence, but I think in general, there is you know no scientific debate over the fact that if people don't have the accumulated lifetime of exposure, they will live longer. And maybe more importantly, they will have fewer debilitating health issues. Having said that, I think that we sometimes in the scientific community, people like me focus on those chronic health outcomes because they're so big, right? And, 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 and they represent so much human suffering and cost and so on, but it occurs a long time in the future and that's not necessarily so motivating. So I think it's also really important to talk about, let's call them acute outcomes and they're not necessarily health. But there are things that happen over very short time scales because I think that's the future of indoor air. I think the chronic health outcomes, we've tried talking about that. You know, I've been talking about it for my entire career. And frankly, you know, we've moved the needle a little bit, but not that much. But it was things like the pandemic, wildfire smoke, uh, maybe if you go back a, a decade or two, uh, cigarette smoke, where people could see 
the issues and see the short-term issues that we sometimes get movement on indoor air. So those chronic issues are really important. I don't want to kind of minimize them, but in terms of the future, I think we're probably going to have to focus a lot more on acute uh, than we have. And they're kind of long-term effects, and they're kind of hard to measure because it is, it's over decades. But what about something more short-term, like, you know, uh, your attention span or how well your brain works in a, in a cleaner air environment? Is there anything on that? Absolutely. So this is uh, some of my favorite research that, that I'm working on right now, and lots of other people are around the world, is the cognitive impacts of indoor air quality. And so I want to be very clear when I talk about cognitive impacts. There are things like uh, likelihood of dementia or Alzheimer's or other kind of very debilitating uh, chronic issues that are associated with air pollution exposure. But what I'm talking about is the short-term stuff, how we make decisions the, uh, to a certain extent, how well we do tasks, how product, productive we are. And there's a whole variety of kind of chronic issues. So some of the experiments that uh, myself and collaborators and my research team is working on, as well as you know, others around the world, is okay, we expose someone to something, some source, and then we measure their cognitive performance. We could do this with what's called a cognitive battery. Probably some of the listeners have done these before where you do a series of cognitive tests, often on a computer, and then uh, certain things about your brain uh, are, are being measured. Or we can also do this with, with brain scanning, where we do something like an MRI during or after exposure, uh, and we can see what functional changes are happening in the brain. And, and I think that is, that is so interesting because there is lots of effects. And I don't think we're at the beginning of our understanding of kind of the mechanism for these effects and the detail, but I always like to share a specific result. So we have a paper that came out a year or two ago uh, where we did a very simple experiment. We took a bunch of subjects, about 60 in total, and we exposed them to either an essential oil in the form of an essential oil diffuser and if the audience doesn't know what an essential oil diffuser is, it's like a little ultrasonic humidifier uh, that you put water in and you put your, your favorite essential oil in and uh, it generates a nice scent in the room. Now, the scientific issue is also generates a ton of particulate matter. That's from minerals in the water as well as from the oil itself. And so we did this experiment where we had a placebo, uh, which was very, very clean water. So it generated essentially nothing or an essential oil diffuser operating. And we measure people's cognitive function. And to make a long, complicated story short, one of the things we found was that people made more impulsive decisions in the presence of an essential oil. So from a practical point of view, when you go into a store and you smell some nice scent in the air, it's there for a lot of reasons. But it's not an accident. Yeah, it's probably to make you more impulsive, spend more money. You know, one of the fascinating things I found when, when you know, looking at your body of work is the experiment part. And that, that is a, certainly an interesting story. I'm curious, is there, are there any other experiments that come to mind that are really um, something that we should all hear about too? This is really interesting stuff. Like you mentioned on your website, uh, the microbiome as well. Right. Maybe you can speak to that. Yeah, absolutely. So I love doing experiments. Uh, I, I particularly love doing field experiments in real buildings because the world is so different. And so you asked about the microbiome and uh, an example of some work we did in that area was we did, again, a relatively simple experiment over a long period of time where we took different building materials and we uh, put them in different offices in different cities uh, around uh, the U.S. and Canada to get some really different climates. 
And then we just looked very simply on at the, the amount of moisture in the material and the community of microorganisms that lo- grew on these different materials. And we had some of these materials on the uh, ceiling, some on the wall, some on the floor to look at, you know, do spaces matter? And to make a, a very long story, as all experiments are, I say that a lot, uh, make a long story short. One of the things we found is that you can think of the microorganisms are everywhere in a building, every surface. You know, the human beings shed said shed millions of microorganisms an hour from their body. So all around where I'm sitting now, there's a microbial community that's accumulating and it's specific to me. It's going to be different from someone else. And, and what we found is that you can kind of think of, of that big microbial community. They're just there. There's lots of microorganisms. They're not necessarily good or bad. They're just part of the, of the surrounding background. But when there's liquid water present, they be, kind of become active. And that's where we start to see really interesting things happen. And so one of the, there was a whole decade or so of research on the indoor microbiome done by lots of really famous people around the world. And one of the things I take from that, that kind of body of research is that water or available water to the microorganism is what's really important. So if we're interested in the indoor microbial community, we should really be thinking about looking for water as much as we are thinking about microorganisms. Now, does that tie into the gut microbiome? I mean, what I've also heard is, you know, there's cat people and dog people, and they actually have found that there was different micro uh, gut microbiomes, which also impacted their personalities and how they acted in day-to-day life. Like, what, what say you on that? Yeah. So, um, you know, I have to admit this gets to a corner of my expertise and, and there are certainly people who, who that's what they do for a living is research the gut microbiome, but the gut microbiome is enormously important from this indoor conversation. The piece that I think we don't fully understand is how well connected is that gut microbiome to the environment? And I think there are times when it's really well connected and times when it's not. You made a comment earlier about children and young children and, and the microbiome. A good example of kind of environment is that there's a really big difference in the microbiome of babies that are born via C-section and babies that are born vaginally. And so that's a good example of, you know, it's a specific environment, obviously, but that's a good example of where the microbiome can really be shaped by environment. And I think where we're kind of at with the microbiome research and, you know, frankly, the kind of priorities have shifted a little bit. And so I'm not sure how much more we're going to see in the short term. But I think some of the really big questions that are out there are, one, people have had this idea for a while about kind of shaping the indoor microbiome. Could we make a healthy indoor microbiome? I call it like yogurt for buildings or something like that, where probiotic building, something like that. And I think that's an interesting idea. There's actually some research in different environments about that. I remember a study from a hospital in Italy uh, where they kind of smeared a bacterial slurry on the walls of patient rooms and looked at some of the, the microbial health outcomes. And they actually found that it improved things. Small study, kind of complicated to, to tease out some of the details. But I I think there's promise there, but we have to do it so carefully. I mean, the joke I always make is that, you know, we can barely control the temperature 
uh, well in a lot of our buildings. So controlling something complex like the microbial community probably takes a little bit of effort. But I think there's you know promise there, something that we should think about. The other thing about the microbial community that I think is, you know, I don't think I fully appreciated before I kind of engaged with that community a little bit, but do now, is that I think microorganisms are really important to us in our bodies. You mentioned the gut microbiome, but it's much more important that there's the skin microbiome, there's the oral microbiome, there's all these different microbiomes in our in our bodies. And I think those are enormously important to our health. So, you know, I mentioned the cognitive function research. If I had infinite resources and infinite time, a study I'd really like to do is to try and look at different kind of body microbiomes and how they influence some of the exposure. Because I have a feeling, and this is somewhat well-supported, although not completely, that how our body processes chemicals we breathe in, be it particles or gases or whatever, has to do with the microorganisms that are there. And I think that the analogy is, you know, we have about 10 or so bacterial cells in our body for every human cell. We are essentially walking meat bags for, for microorganisms. And so we think about ourselves as individuals, but really we're better described as a collection of microorganisms. And so for things like exposure, indoor exposures and so on, I have to think that, that those microorganisms are important, but I don't know that we fully understand why or how. Certainly a very complex subject to, you know, indoor air quality. A- absolutely. And I know that, you know, certainly in, in the commercial real estate space, uh, well, and it, I think it transcends that there's a lot of these certification bodies like the Wells and Leeds, Fitwells, OA Best, CSA that, you know, governs healthcare in Canada. I guess the, the million dollar question I have is, well, how well do these certifications sort of balance indoor air quality and, and healthy buildings, I should say, and sustainability? Because at points, they seem to be opposing forces. Yeah, absolutely. So there's a lot in that question. And so the first thing that I should probably start with is, in general, I am supportive of certifications because I think the attention on the issue is really important. Having said that, I think the details are really important. And so there is a lot of certifications out there, and I won't kind of go into, won't name names, but that um, do exactly what you said. They end up prioritizing kind of energy issues or or carbon issues over indoor air quality issues. And I think that is something that troubles me. And it troubles me because, first of all, I think that we have buildings for the people. And so we should always be thinking about the people. But the other reason it troubles me is I feel like it's a little bit of a false accounting. Like I've never seen an analysis of if someone requires additional health care, because of things that they breathe in a building, there are enormous carbon consequences. Often our most energy using buildings are our healthcare facilities, our hospitals, and so on. And not to mention kind of all of the kind of carbon and energy impacts that go with most medical treatments. And so I think if we really did an honest accounting of carbon and of energy, health would be really important to address. So that's kind of one thing to think about with certifications. The other thing is that it's technically really hard to do indoor air quality certifications well. And that's because there are so many things in the air that we might worry about. Many of them don't have, we don't have functionally any indoor standards to deal with almost anywhere in the world. And that's because um, it's 
so complicated to regulate the indoor environment. And I'm sure we'll come back and talk about that in a bit. And so, you know, you have a lot of standards that choose to focus on different things. And one of the things I really like to do in my class, I will name a standard now, I go through lead from version one to the current version and pick the main indoor air quality credit or credits, depending on, on the year, just in one of the flavors, let's say the commercial new construction, and show how it's changed over time. And pollutants have come and gone and changed in concentration. The whole approach has changed over time. And that's good. That, that represents evolution. But it also shows that, you know, we're still a little bit guessing at how to do this. And then the last thing I'll mention about certifications is I have a real issue, probably more than anything else, with certifications that are done at time of design or time of construction, because buildings change over time. The indoor air quality today is like the building I'm in right now that was built, you know, 50, 60 years ago. The indoor air quality at time of design and construction is essentially irrelevant to the indoor air quality right now. And so I really think, and this is another area of my research, uh, I really think we need to think about how are we documenting indoor air quality now and how are we, 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 we addressing that? And I think some certifications try to do that to a certain extent, and I think that's good, but I think we need a lot more. I think, and also, uh, or just as, as a thought, I would assume that the air quality of your work or your school or what have you is certainly far superior to the air quality you can sort of get home because of not only these different certifications and regulations, but also, you know, the HVAC systems that are really well designed and a lot of time and money and effort has gone into designing these. What is your opinion on that? Of course, that I should say, of course, every home is different and every workplace is different. But generally speaking, is there a general kind of stance on that? I always give the answer to a question like that, that my students all hate, which is it depends. But, but, but it, it does depend. So I think in a lot of cases, what you said is true. It's cleaner in work and school environments. But I think it's really, there are a lot of times where that's not true. So I'll give you a couple of very easy to understand examples. We have lots and lots of schools throughout Canada and the US and the world that were built, you know, decades ago, a hundred years ago or so on. A lot of them don't even have central forced air HVAC. And so, you know, even the basic ventilation can be can be hard to get. Another example is, you know, depending on where your workplace is, it might be located somewhere with higher ambient air pollution than your home. And as a rough scale, of course, it depends a lot. About half of indoor pollution comes from outdoors. And so just by location of, of your home or school or your workplace, you can get very different exposure to ambient air pollution inside of your building. And so, you know, what you said is certainly true for the kind of class A office buildings, the kind of uh, uh, schools that are built to a high standard, but certainly not universal. What are the common, from a filtration standpoint, because that is uh, my, my area or my wheelhouse that I spend my time in is, you know, from a lot of these certifications, MERV 13 seems to be the, the go-to recommendation for filters. But I mean, certainly your body of work shows that there's more to it than just a MERV rating. Can you maybe expound or you know share with the audience why aren't all MERV 13s necessarily created equally in terms of their actual performance in the real world? Yeah, that sounds good. And I'm going to sure, assume people listening to this are well aware of what MERV is, but I think it's worth kind of talking about 
Merv is the product of an ASHRAE standard, standard 52.2. And so that Merv 13 filter will perform according to a certain set of criteria in a test stuck in a laboratory. And this is actually, when you asked me to talk about some of my research, this wasn't topical before, but it is now. One of the things I love doing and, and spending a lot of time doing is going to a building that has, let's say, MERV 13 or, or any level of filtration installed and seeing what the performance actually is. And the answer universally is it depends, but it's really different. Uh, so that MERV 13 filter often performs differently in different buildings, the very same filter. And there's a lot of reasons for that. Things like uh, air bypass. So if you go look at a lot of filter installations, they're not installed, maybe installed particularly well is a nice way of saying it, but there are gaps around it. And air follows the easiest pathway. And the kind of ironic thing is if you have a better filter that probably has a higher pressure drop, then you're going to force more air through the gap than if you had a lower efficiency filter. And so an air that goes through the gap isn't filtered essentially at all. So you have things like air bypass, you have a flow rate variation. A lot of systems by design or by operation operate at a different flow rate than that filter when it was tested in the laboratory. And so, for example, if you operate at a lower flow rate, you will end up being more efficient for some particles and less efficient for other particles. And then the opposite, if you operate at a, at a higher flow rate than in the standard. So right away, you know, before we even start talking about differences between different MERV 13 filters, how the filter is used is really important. And then MERV 13 filters are all different. Some filters are made of a media where kind of a charge is applied at the factory, an electric charge. And so that helps the filter remove particles, but that charge effect changes over time. So in a lot of buildings, that charge effect diminishes, but there's really a lot of variation here. In some buildings, it, it, it diminishes a very little bit over long periods of time. In other buildings, it diminishes a lot very quickly. And so I've seen in my own research, MERV 13 filters that after a few weeks are performing like MERV 6 or MERV 7 filters. Uh, uh, and that can happen. You can also have MERV 13 filters that are performing more or less as MERV 13 over time. So the filter really matters. And then even beyond that material difference, there are all kinds of filter design differences. So one of the things I like to tell people to do in their residence, because a very common question is, hey, what kind of filter should I get? I always say that, you know, one of the, the kind of cheapest and best things you can do with regards to filtration in your house is to put in a, a, a filter slot that can accommodate a deeper filter, a thicker filter. And that seems kind of counterintuitive, but a thicker filter, you know, is going to be heavily pleated. So it's going to have uh, uh, the filter media kind of goes back and forth in a zigzag. And what that does is it really uh, makes the filter perform much better and it also makes that filter last much longer. I mean, the filter is more expensive, so the economics kind of work out the way they work out. But what that does is it gives you a very good filter at a lower pressure drop. And so, um, again, you know, MERV 13 filter, you could be talking about anything from a one-inch filter that, without kind of casting aspersions, might decline a lot in performance over time to a really solid five-inch filter that's going to last for for six months and does a fantastic job over its entire lifetime. How you use a filter is the important piece. 
That makes a lot of sense. And, and frankly, I think it's, it was a 2008 ASHRAE came out with that Appendix J test, which basically is the MERV test, except without a static charge. So think of, I try to tell folks that, you know, MERV is sort of the best case scenario. MERV A, think of MERV A as actual. That's the worst case scenario of that filter. So then people can make an educated decision as to what they're actually implementing. I mean, in Canada, hospitals have to have a MERV A rated filter. So when folks are looking at air filtration, they should look to, well, what are the hospital standards? And and that's certainly one of them. But I guess the Another great question is why aren't there MERV police to go out and actually, you know, you're you're paying for MERV thirteen, but you're getting MERV seven. Like in any other world, that that's not fair or or allowed, for lack of a better term. Okay, so let's address two really distinct things. The first thing is kind of MERV versus MERV A. I think that it's important to be like really really clear here. Like we know that that some filters decline in performance as they age. No doubt about it. Where there is substantial debate, and I think really good debate and really important debate, is you know how much any conditioning step reflects real life. And I have been on in so many committee meetings where there's this very circular argument that goes on. We know that filters decline. The amount of de- declining depends on what that filter is exposed to, and of course, the filter itself. And so a standardized test can only reflect one set of conditions, not real life. And so we go in this argument forever. And of course, manufacturers of filters that don't decline very much would like a very stringent conditioning step. And manufacturers of filters that do decline would like a very weak conditioning step. And I don't think we should we should ever try and resolve that. I think, you know, what you said about hospitals is absolutely true. If you are interested in worst case performance, absolutely use use MERV A. But I think we need to think about moving to a model of in situ or in person testing in the actual building. So let's not have this discussion about how much decline is actually happening. Let's measure it and let's come up with easy to use, easy to implement measurement. And then, you know, what I hope happens with that is less like, oh, this filter has declined a lot. This filter hasn't declined, but this is the performance we want. And so, so let's, let's, let's do it. And oh my God, look, when we seal that bypass gap around the filter, we get a lot better performance. Or when we actually do a proper test and test and balancing and get the right airflow that the system should have, we get a ton of better performance and we'll see filter declines. And they're certainly important in many buildings. But the point is let's, let's kind of try and move from filter standards to what's really happening. No, I, li- I like that because, you know, thinking of future proofing where, look, right now having an in-situ test for a lot of folks can be cost prohibitive. And then you're not going to become a filter expert overnight. And I wouldn't wish that on anyone. It's a lot of work to try and understand that stuff. It's just like, I want to know as a customer, am I getting the air quality I'm paying for, period, regardless of where it comes from. I, I would imagine the world or a utopian uh, world where we could have an air handling unit that tells you exactly how good your air quality is. And then you can adjust at, at, and down the road. I think that's a really interesting um, uh, innovation opportunity for sure. Yeah, absolutely. And I want to respond to something else you said about the MERV police. And uh, so, you know, in indoor air, it's such a problematic area for regulation because there are no real standards to go on that, that especially over time, there are some ventilation standards at the time of construction or major renovation, but there aren't really standards. And I don't think there ever will be standards. No one wants the the MERV police in their in their building, uh, uh, you know, telling them, "Ah, oh, you didn't change your filters in time." 
and actually, I think that's the wrong approach. I think that that we'll do much, much better if we take a public information approach, make sure people understand the consequences of their actions, make, pe- make sure people understand. I think people understand the costs very well. You get a bill that has, you know, how much your filter and your filter change costs are uh, on them. But I don't think we've done a very good job talking about those benefits. And maybe we need some more science. Maybe we've got enough now. But what are the actual benefits of filtration? So that people can make rational decisions. And I think if we take that kind of information-based approach combined with some, some monitoring so that we're making sure we're getting the performance that we think, I think that's an approach that's both more likely to be effective and not kind of tread on some of the complicated issues with regulation. And one of the smartest things I've ever heard anyone say about indoor air, and the person who said it was a program manager at a, at a funding agency, so I'm not going to reveal uh, uh, who they are, but, and this was 15, 20 years ago, they said that the whole problem with indoor air from a regulatory standpoint is that no politician in the world is going to tell people that their buildings aren't sanctuaries, especially their homes, because that politician wouldn't be reelected. So we're never going to get you know, that type of, of regulation or that type of attention. And so I think that the, the, the right approach is really to, to make it very clear, you know, do the research we need to do so that we can tell people they can do an honest uh, assessment. And I think if people have information, this doesn't always work out, but I think it often works out. If people have information, they'll make good decisions. Well, unfortunately, we have to leave it there for today. But wow, what an episode. You're so giving lots of really deep and really high quality information. Uh, Jeffrey Siegel, Professor of Civil Engineering at the University of Toronto. Thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. You can find contacts and more information for Jeffrey in the description area of this podcast. If you'd like to discover more about Clean Air or even consider joining Canfield's Chief Ergonomics Officer Initiative, you'll find lots of information and free training resources as well at chiefergonomicsofficer.com. There's also a LinkedIn group where you're welcome to join us on also. Links for all of those in the description area of the podcast. Finally, please do spread the word and share our podcast with a friend or colleague. Just tell them to search Apple, Spotify or YouTube or wherever you get your podcasts for Let's Talk Clean Air. Until next time, from myself, Dusty Rhodes and from John, thank you very much for listening.